the fulfillment of God's covenant with his people is an arbitrary act of grace on his part. I'm going to prove it. I want to prove it, of course, from the word of God, because I want your faith to rest and trust in what God has said. Welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your grace. I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that declares to us your goodness and your mercy. I pray, dear Lord, as we look at the first letter of John, that we might behold Jesus. Take your servant, your teacher, out of the way, that we might see him, him unobscured, that we might see the, the gospel in, in purity and with no compromise in any way, but just to see it for the way you meant it to be seen. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's lesson is episode 48 in uh, this present The Cultural Christianity series. The title of this message is The Knowledge of Salvation. In, in way of review, last week we looked at 1 John chapter 1, and we concluded in chapter 2 verse 1, which said, My little children... I am writing these things so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, last week, it went into the that which was from the beginning, which we have seen and heard and declared to you, and they're referring the apostles to the Lord Jesus Christ, John in particular, but also including the others, and that they, they saw him, they heard him, they, they felt him, they interacted with him, they, they were there as friends, as people, he's a man. And this is the God who we read about in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is, uh, this is intimacy with Almighty God. This is God making himself known to men. And then John goes on and he speaks about fellowship and the necessity and the productivity of having fellowship with God primarily and then with other believers and how that walking in the light, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Walk in the light is to walk in the truth. You either walk in the truth or you walk in a lie. You either say you're a Christian and live like a non-believer and he says that's lying and that's not real and it's not a truly a Christian. But if one walks with God, um, if we say we have sin, we make him a liar. He's not saying we're perfect. He's not saying we don't sin. He's saying Christians and who are believers in Jesus Christ, they do not walk in sin as a way of life. They do, they do not live a life that is not has not been separated from 
this present culture. So in Acts chapter 2, when we mentioned this last week, and it's very important, at the end of Peter's message, in chapter 2 and verse 37, now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? I mean, these are all Jews. These are people who saw Christ and he went first to the house of Israel. And he he spent all his time in Israel. He he basically wiped out sickness and death and death really from, from Israel at that time in the revelation that he was indeed Almighty God in the flesh. Peter said to them, Repent, turn away from sin, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now that's that's being baptized into Christ. That's being placed into, into the body of Christ. And in that place of, of one's identity being in Christ in reality, not just in the person's mind that I find my identity in being a Christian, in being one with Christ, but more importantly, it is actually what God is doing. And God is placing a person in Christ so that their identity is in Christ and they walk in Christ. They've repented of sins and they've turned away from that wicked generation. And so it says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. As Paul said, he was separated unto the gospel of God. Separated from what? Separated from this wicked generation. Every generation, believe it or not, every generation, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, every generation is a perverse generation. Perverse in the sight of God. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what we get accustomed to and how we may harden our conscience so that we disobey God and don't even feel guilty about it. That doesn't. We're not talking. We're talking about how God looks at things. Then John goes on, and that's where we pick it up this week, where he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he carries it on right into this next chapter. His thought is still the same. 
that uh, we want to be open and honest. We, we don't want to be proud and as if we thought that we didn't sin. Um, we want to walk in the truth, but at the same time, he's now saying, as he has been saying, may, my little children, I am writing these things to, to you so that you may not sin. There's no excuse, no, no rationale, no irresponsibility not to sin. John uh, begins by saying, my little children. Of course, by this time, John was an old man at the writing of this first letter. And he regarded, I mean, all people as his children. I think it's more than just age. I mean, he just had a compassion of a father. But more importantly, the child of God must always be first and foremost a little child. John's desire for them was a fulfillment of Jesus' word in Matthew 18.3 that said, unless you be converted, turn or repent and become like little children, a little child, you cannot be my disciple. So the person who disciples others is always his desire for humility and to see his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to be childlike, not childish, but childlike. My little children, he writes in 2.1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Honesty, transparency, and childlike disposition always lead to repentance and a true repentance always results in putting an end to sinning. Temptation from the world of flesh and the devil may return, but the power of grace remains the same if the process of humility remains. There is one that is righteous, Jesus Christ. He only always makes righteous choices. The devil always uses our flesh to lead us to sin, so that we will be separated from God, who we know hates sin, and will not have fellowship with it. The Holy Spirit will always convict us of sin and then lead us to the cross of Christ for repentance, cleansing, and restored fellowship with Him. It's good to know those two different ways in which we are brought under conviction. One by the devil, and one by God through the working of the Holy Spirit. He says uh, here, following, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the, right, the righteous. That's how he ends to one. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Advocate is a legal advocate who makes a right judgment call because they're close enough to the situation to know what's going on. One who pleads another's cause. And it goes on in verse 2 and says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is to appease an offended party. And it was Christ's atoning blood sacrifice that appeased God's anger and wrath. Now there's two things going on there. There's one Christ as a sacrificial offering, but there's also Christ as the advocate because he understands from a standpoint, and I'm going to talk about it in a minute, from the standpoint of what he experienced on the cross before Almighty God that actually 
brought him into an awareness, not just as Almighty God in which he knows everything, but as a man. So he could relate to us in our finite condition and then also becoming sin for us. I mean, he just went to the infinite degree to understand us, to love us in a sacrificial way. And furthermore, to become a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean that when he died, as some believe, that that sin carried the appeasement of God for everyone who would ever be born, and it's only men's faith that holds them back from being saved. That's really not a biblical way of looking at it, and I hope to prove that towards the end of this message. But what it means is that people from every tongue, language, nation, culture, every single group have been brought into the kingdom by God. Now, you say, well, what about the gospel that didn't go out? But you have to remember that in every culture, and particularly before this age of science and medicine, where so many less, at least in countries that are further along in, in medicine, that, that infants don't, they may be murdered, but they don't die as they once did. And so when you look at, well, what about the people all over the world who never heard the gospel, every one of those cultured lo- cultures lost multitudes of children before they knew better. When God, and God refers to infants as innocent ones. How could they be innocent? Because they didn't do anything. They didn't get to an age where they could make a, 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 a choice. They didn't know right from wrong. There was no choices. It's just like eat, uh, sleep, and poop, you know, that's what infants do. There's no choices. And when a, chi- a person, a child, dies at that age, they're covered by the blood and they, they will experience eternal eternity and eternal life. That's a choice that God made, always makes. And so it can be said, every single culture will be represented there, if by nothing else, but by those who died before they were in age of accountability. But Jesus is an advocate. He's a legal advocate who makes a right judgment call because he's close enough to the situation. Someone giving evidence that stands up in court. Someone who pleads another's course. Yeah, cause. John uses the word... So, let me say this. Picture for yourself in order to understand just how Christ understands us. Think to yourself and imagine what it would be like in those things that you're most uh, ashamed. Something you just would never want other people to know. People that you've held, maybe you struggle with this thing, maybe you get victory over it sometimes, and you struggle much. There are those sins. You, You put up the fight, you keep fighting and you're fighting and you're fighting and you beat it down and you beat it down and you beat it down. You have victory, you have victory, you have loss, and it's a battle. And you're ashamed of it, but you want to let it go. This is uh, Romans 7, 14 through 25. Makes a lot of people stumble if you don't get it in the context of uh, Romans 5, 6, and 7 up to that point. Because it's a whole different matter 
when you look at that. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about sanctification, the process of God changing the Christian, the believer, into something new. And this is how God teaches people to keep them holy, to make them holy. And right now what I'm talking about is shame. I'm talking about guilt. I'm talking about carrying this thing that you wouldn't want anyone else to know. Think of it in terms of what if you lived in a world where everyone in the world, big population in the world, you could travel and you could go and wherever you went, they knew what that one thing was that made you feel the most shameful. If you have something like that in your life, if you're not living in such a delusion like you don't sin, if you're living in reality, if you see before you such a guilt, such a shame, and you wouldn't want anyone to know, and you now live in a world where everyone knows, and every time you come into contact with them, they make you feel shamed. They bring it out. They make you feel little and small, and they make something out of it. Just think about that, what that would be like. That would be a horrible existence of shame. Well, think about this. God hates sin infinitely more than we do. God, according to Hebrews chapter 10, is a consuming fire. Now, he sent the son to die, and his son, for the last 2,000 years, has been rejected. Rejected for the message, just the way the law was rejected under Moses, so Christ was rejected under the message of the cross. God hates sin, and sin basically says, God, I hate you. I don't want you in control of my life. I'd rather make an idol out of wood or stone or metal or some stupid thing. I'd rather, I'd rather idolize and, and call God a frog than you. I wish you were dead. I'd just rather have an idol, do what I want to do with my own life, and that's the whole reason for it. Even though there's a conscience, even, even though we understand to some degree when we do wrong by the conscience God played within it, placed within us, we do not want God in our lives. And this is the essence of sin. Now, you know that shame that you don't want known? God knows it all. 100%. Not think about it, maybe see some fruit from your person's actions or attitude. He reads the heart in every tiny detail. And he hates it. And throughout eternity, he makes it known. Throughout eternity, people will be in the light so far as God sees everything. That the, Even the darkness, the scripture says, is light to a mighty God. And in that light, even in the depths of a person's own darkness, of the wickedness of wanting God's death and not wanting his control, and so there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping in the sorrow of those who felt like they thought they were something when they were nothing and they were broken and they're sad, and the gnashing of teeth that people hate God so much, just like they gnashed at Stephen, picked up stones and killed him, for his message, a message that could save them had they believed in it. That is eternity, and it's an eternity that Jesus Christ understands because he experienced it for every single person for whom he died. That's the message of the cross and of salvation 
that Jesus Christ is a high priest, not untouched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted as we are, yet without sin, and yet he went to the cross in our place. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We can't comprehend it. We can't wrap our minds around it. We can't go into eternity and see it and feel it. That's the concept that we have. That's the truth of the gospel that one has to believe, even though they can't wrap their mind around it. And it comes from God, so it can be trusted because God does not lie. Now, going on to verse 3 in chapter 2 of John's first letter, John uses the word know 33 times in his letter. K-N-O-W. As in verse 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Keep is an interesting word. It means to watch, to observe. And in that observing, what are they, what's he observing if we keep his commandments? So now he, he's talking about epistemology, which is a branch of philosophy concerned with knowledge. You know, it's... Uh, it's Epistemologists study the, the nature, the origin, and scope of knowledge, or at least they try. Put another way, we say, how do, how do you know that what you know is so? I mean, how do you know what you know? That's the epistemologist, what he says. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, put yet another way. I've heard it put this way. I love this way. It's, it's not what you know that will hurt you. It's what you know that ain't so. I think that's a great way to do it. You know, because there's what we think we know, and boy, we know it. You know, I don't know, I know, you know, and how many times we've been wrong. And it's like, man, I could have sworn it was that way, you know. But no, missed the boat. So this is what he's talking about in verse 3. By this we know that we come to know him if we observe, watch, guard his commandments. Chapter 2 and verse 3 speaks of the study and doctrine of assurance, actually. How do we know? I mean, how, how are we assured of who we are, that we, we have eternal life? By this, uh, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Knowing Christ is to know eternal life, to possess eternal life. Now, there's three ways that we can know. We're only going to look at two of them. But there's only two, th there's three ways in which a person can actually know and have the assurance that he has, uh, he has eternal life. First, there's subjectively. Subjectively, by the transformation and changes Christ makes in a person's character. They see themselves changing. Other people observe and changing. And that observation of a transformed life is evidence that Christ is in the life. More than that, there's objectively by the promises and, and character of God. By the promises and character in God's word, many, many times, in many ways, God promises, well, I will never leave you, nor never forsake you. You know, just promise after promise after promise. And when a person takes that promise home in their heart, well, that can become an objective way of knowing because they're putting their full weight of faith and trust in that promise. And it becomes an, object, an objective way of knowing 
subjective way is that transformation is taking place in their in their life, in their soul, in their character, and how they make choices. The third way, which we'll not talk about today, is the sealing of the spirit. Um, that we we're not going to look at it, but it, it is the most secure. It's something that God does in a person, uh, which is just over and above the top. I mean, it's just an assurance. It's unbreakable. It's a conviction that sends people to martyrdom in, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit so without even fear. <clears throat> now, as we continue down this line of thought, uh, I want to look at keep his commandments in Greek. Uh, if we keep his commandments, keep in, in Greek is to watch over, to guard, properly maintain, preserve, to hold, hold firmly. That holding firmly, that observing, is what? Focus on the Word of God. It's not just about commandments, even though he uses that word commandments here, because the focus he wants to be is about holiness and getting away from sin, and there's a command, 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 but the command encompasses the whole, really, of the Word of God. When we observe the Word of God, because actually the New Testament isn't written just as like the Ten Commandments, you got the Ten Commandments, or just a slew of ways in which all those Ten Commandments work out. They're basically, it's ten, but then there's all these other ways you can look through in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you find all about the love of God and how to do it. Well, in the New Testament, there's doctrines, like I was going talking about a minute ago, in Romans, chapters, you know, all of Romans, especially 1 through 12, but, you know, 1... Uh, chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, I mean, these are just a wealth of riches of how to be holy. The soil that grows, the plant and the leaf and the fruit that brings forth the fullness of what holiness is made out of. This is a teaching, it's a doctrine. And by observing and study to show yourself to prove unto God, a workman does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This, is, this word of truth engrafted in our hearts and our minds changes us. And so what he's saying here is this keeping of the commandment com uh, through the word of God is that to observe, guard carefully, keep it as sacred in our hearts. What? God's word. God's holy word. Furthermore, these doctrines instruct us in the way of grace by which we can know that we know Christ and be assured of our salvation. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16 says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Did you catch that? Hebrews 10, 16. This, uh, which is a quote from the Old Testament, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. What is he saying there? The fulfillment of God's covenant with his people is an arbitrary act of grace on the part of God. Catch it? The fulfillment of God's covenant 
with his people is an arbitrary act of grace on his part. I'm going to prove it. I want to prove it, of course, from the word of God because I want your faith to rest and trust in what God has said. Now, you, I make this statement. This is my statement. The fulfillment of God's covenant with his people is an arbitrary act of grace on his part. It means nothing because it's coming from me unless I can prove it from the word of God. First place we'll go is Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Moses stood at the burning bush, uh, a bush that burned but wasn't consumed. I mean, just think of the flames are going up, and they're going up, and who knows how long he's standing there. And he said, I have to, this is a wonderful sight. I mean, this is, this is, this is incredible. And so I got to go see this thing. I mean, I'm looking at this thing for 45 minutes, and it's like it's not ashes yet. What's going on? So he stands before the burning bush. It's a miracle. And the voice of God is being heard. Take off your shoes, this is holy ground. It's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is Moses in a moment of a miracle. And God tells Moses his name, I am that I am. Yeah, I mean, he's down on his face. He's, he's, he's done. And then God goes on to commission Moses to go to Egypt and he's going to bring out these people. It's an incredible, you know, it's an incredible sight that he's seeing, but this is an incredible task. I mean, really, Pharaoh and armies and chariots and swords and like I'm going to go in there like I am, you know, with sandals and, you know, and I'm going to say, I let them go. Let the people go. Okay. So you can understand where Moses might be taken back a little, even though he's in the presence of a miracle and the voice of God. So in chapter 3 and 19 and 20, it says this, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go. This is God speaking to Moses. I mean, I know the king of Egypt, he's not going to permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will reach out with my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it, and after that, he will let you go. Okay? Now he's got the word of God in his ear, you know. But, you know, there's, there's times when people talk to us. Now, this is Almighty God, but there's sometimes when people talk to us, you know, we hear the words... But, you know, like we're not either accepting it or we're not trusting it or we're not believing it or we just don't care about it. And it's just one in, you know, the expression is in one ear and out the other. It just hasn't stopped in our brain. And we're not, we're not really taking it in and thinking, meditating and okay. We're not in line with it. It's just not there. So Moses says to him, well, uh, what if they will not believe me or, or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So first when he goes to the children of Israel, they want to, want to know what his name is. And they were horrible people, you know, stiff neck and hard heart and all of that, God repeatedly says. And then after that, he's going to go to, Mo he's going to, go to Pharaoh, okay? As for Moses, his behavior is what we call inattentive listening. I mean, God's word just wasn't heard. So we go on to chapter 4. Verses 21 to 23, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. You know, he's going to throw the rod down, it's going to turn to a snake, and, and then with that rod, I mean, he's going to turn the water to blood, all of this stuff. But I will harden his heart that he will not let the people go. Now, I know people look at that, God's going to harden his heart. This is not something that's being forced on Pharaoh. You know, the, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. 
It's the same sun. The sun's not changing. It's not being altered. It's just the effect that it has on the difference between wax and clay. Pharaoh had a hard heart. There was no less than miracle to transform that heart. <clears throat> it just, it was Pharaoh's heart. Like every person ever born to Adam, Adam sinned and he, he turned on God. And he did, in spite of the fact that God told him, don't eat the fruit, you're going to die in that day. He just didn't listen, he did it his own way. And the whole race is just like that. We're born with a hard heart towards God. And so, he says to him, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's just going to let these miracles go and they're going to continue to harden Pharaoh's heart. It's already hard. It doesn't take anything to harden this guy's heart. He's just letting these, these plagues come in which are consequences for his disobedience to God, which is righteous, by the way. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go so that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I am going to kill your son, your firstborn. And he did that to everyone in the whole nation of Egypt. This is all righteous. This is holy judgment. This is God's glory being revealed in doing what's right. I mean, Pharaoh didn't have the right to enslave the Israelites at all. That's what we do as wicked people. We control. We're nasty. We gossip. Every time we can, we control. And the more people, power people have, the more controlling they are. So Moses turns around again, and now he's going to talk to and this is back in verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, this is Moses really getting his stuff on, you know, with God. He's, uh, he, he's becoming the friend of God. He's talking to God. And when he talks to God here, he's letting God know what he's feeling in his emotions, in his, in his, in his heart. You know, he's just, and this is what he said back in verse 12. He said, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. I mean, he's not, he doesn't know who's on his, even on God's side. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. This is what God, he's saying, God said to him. Okay, so he goes on to verse 13, and he says, Now then, if I have found favor in your sight, in any way, please let me know your ways, so that I may know you in order that I might find favor in your sight. I mean, he's like here putting God, not to the test, but he's saying, okay, so you said this, now do this, you know, to show me that what you're saying is true. What's he asking for? He wants to know God's ways. He, he wants to know what God's ways are. So what does God say in 17 and 19 later, just a little bit down, he, the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And by the way, it says Moses was the most humble man on the earth at that time. God loves humility. Make no mistake about it. And Moses, after 40 years in the sheep, with the sheep, you know, he killed an Egyptian, tried to take matters in his own hand, and he ran away. And when he ran away, he just didn't want to be part of Egypt, and he just gave away his life. It was really an act of humility. I mean, he went aside 
with the Israelites. He gave up being the ruler of the world. He humbled himself. And God looks at this. Of course, God's behind it all. <clears throat> but God looks at all of this and he just, he's known him by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. He wants to know his ways. And here, he wants to see his glory. I mean, he's asking for God. And in verse 19, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have mercy, show mercy on whom I will have mercy. All right, let's think about this for a minute. Just stop. I'm talking about, let me re restate that statement that I made. The fulfillment of God's covenant. What's the covenant? This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And I said, the fulfillment of God's covenant with his people is an arbitrary act of grace on God's part. He's going to write them on their heart and their mind. What does Moses say? I want to know your glory. I want to know your ways. I want to see your glory and I want to know your ways. And he says, okay, fine. I'm going to, I'm going to give this answer to you too. And what's he say? He says, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of Jehovah before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion to whom I show compassion. And we can put in there in another place when he was in the cleft of the rock. You know, God he'll pour, pour out his wrath on who he wants to pour out his wrath. And he has the right to do that to every person who's ever born to Adam's race. And so when it comes to salvation, when it comes to a man having the law written in his heart so that he can objectively focus on the Word of God, and he can subjectively see the transformation that's taking place, he has to know this, it's God who's doing it. Because God will have grace on whom he will have grace. That's his choice, not man's. Man only has a choice after he's been freed from the domination and the slavery of sin. Because when God talks about man prior to salvation... He speaks about slavery to sin. Just study Romans 6 and 7. But when he talks about man after salvation, then he's recording man who's set free to love and worship Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ. I will have grace to whom I will have grace, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Period. End of story. That puts the Arminian in the error zone. You know, the error zone. Because salvation is an act of arbitrary will on God's part. And he doesn't have to go the extra mile. And, God, and man does not overrule God by some act of will. That is ridiculous. Why? It's not in the Bible. Nowhere it can it be found in God's Word. That's not... What is there? Instead, what we read in John chapter 2 is this. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commands 
is a liar and the truth is not in him. So the transforming work, which is an act of grace, not his own ability, is an act of God. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected or made complete. Let me read that again. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And, verse 6, the one who says he abides in him, he remains in Christ, the one who says he remains in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That is Christ. Wow. Complete in Christ. Look, I'm identified with Christ. I'm a Christian. I walk down the aisle. You know, I said the prayer. I'm in the kingdom. But you're living like the devil. You know, you keep making excuses for sin. Your life is falling apart. You're doing drugs. Your marriage is just, you know, it's where, where is it? You're cheating on your taxes. You know, you're just doing, you're lying about who you are. And this is what John did in chapter 1, and he's taking it right into chapter 2, and he's going to take it throughout the whole book, the whole letter. Honesty, truth, humility, or dishonesty, lying, walking in the dark, saying that we're something when we're not. And we know how Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his days, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We understand, and the scribes, we, that he just, he couldn't stand it. And he drove them to do what they wanted to do, which was nail him to a cross, even though they were religious. If God doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. You want to know the, the whole main point of life? The whole main point behind all of this? The very thing that we don't see, the thing that was from the beginning, the thing, what, what, what we have heard and we have seen with our eyes and we have looked at with, and touched with our hands, as John said, concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed. And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That's Jesus. He makes all this real. And even throughout the Old Testament, he spoke in so many ways to the prophets. And he made so many things known, which were just hard to understand. And they still are today. I mean, you can go to churches across this nation and hear messages preached, and never touch on the depth of these things. What thing? We're talking about something that Calvin is hated for. The sovereignty of God. The fact that God has the right to, to condemn or to save at his will. Jonathan Edwards, you know, his name doesn't come up as much as Calvin. And so many of the reformers and so many of those during the Great Awakening, that time when the Holy Spirit was poured out and so many people were saved, were feeling the effects, and they're getting less every day. You know, even after 200 years, still feeling the effects of what took place. And what was preached in those days? God's grace, God's sovereignty, that God's in control of all things and He's going to save who He will save. He'll have mercy on who He has mercy. Rather than today, going back to Arminian, Arminius and, and, and believing that man is in control and if I don't receive Jesus, you know, I can't get saved and God can't do anything about it. What a disgrace. What a heresy that is. 
And I, and I believed it in the past. I'm not above this thing. And I plead with those out there who want to take that kind of a, a thing and say, well, you know, this is really complicated and you've got to have grace and you've got to walk. No, you really got to walk in the truth. Nothing is more important than walking in the truth. You know, having, being amiable and getting along and, you know, let's not argue, let's just be nice to one another. That does not please God when you're walking in a lie. And walking in the shaded area and not going like in your own mind, you know, well, I'm not all the way this way and I'm not all the way that way. That's right. You're just right in the middle, sitting on a picket fence, and you really don't care to take one side or the other because you just don't take the time. I don't know what the reason is. Take the time to know the truth. Study the Word of God. It takes sweat. It takes hard work. Do what needs to be done to come to the night and humble yourself before God and say, I can't even know these things unless you pour out your spirit in me and open my eyes and let me see. Isn't Jesus worth it? I mean, when I shared a little bit about what Jesus endured on the cross, that he was able to reach out into eternity to save me, to save you from an eternity of sin, and in that, Jesus, who loves the Father with an infinite love, who only wants to respect and worship and glorify him as the second person of the Trinity, and he wants the love of the Father, being in a place of dishonor, disgrace, shame, and guilt, in a, in a sense for an eternity, to save us from that sin. I, I can't comprehend it. I can't wrap my mind around it. It doesn't mean I can't believe it. I know that's what Jesus suffered. The Bible tells me so. Jesus suffered in that worst possible way. What work should we not do? What sacrifice should we not make? To what extent should we not humble ourselves before Almighty God so that we walk in the truth, we walk in the commandments, and we know what we know is so? I mean, I know Jesus loves me. And I know that my salvation is not in my hands or my keeping. I know it's all up to Him. And it's already been done. It was done before the foundation of the world. He chose me. He made me the way I am today. He's still making me that way. And that was always the plan. Why? I can't tell you. It's an arbitrary grace. I don't know the mind of God on these things. I know what's revealed because they study the Word of God, but those things are not revealed. They're hidden. They belong to Him. Deuteronomy 29, 29, I believe. Well, I hope these words mean something to you. I hope they bless your heart. And if you're in a place of disagreement and that place is not consistent with the Word of God, I, I hope God will reveal that to you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. It's a hard Word, but it's a good Word. It's a Word where we can step out from underneath the rigor of, doing, of being a Christian for the wrong reasons. I'm going to read the Bible, but it's hard, and I don't want to do it, and I have to struggle through it, rather than enjoy it, rather than do it out of love, and love God, and love my fellow man, and love the truth, and even though people reject us for it, we share it, because it's, what's, it's for God's glory, and it helps men the best, the most. And so, Lord, I, I pray for all the listeners to this, whoever they are, 
that they, they would take this word and, and let it be planted in their heart and, and other doctrines, particularly in Romans, so that it would just take up a place in their heart to bear fruit for God, the fruit of the gospel. And it begins with grace, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. No one's going to boast about it in any way, even choice. Faith is a choice to trust. But it's by grace first. God comes first. Lord, plant this idea not only in their minds, but in every listener's heart that he can know with assurance, objectively, subjectively, and and by the sealing of your Holy Spirit without any doubt so that he could go to the cross if he's so asked by you. I mean, if we don't deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you, we can't be your disciple. We can't, we're not followers. We have to be willing to lay down our lives. We have to see the gospel as that valuable, and we have to turn from away from this perverse generation. Do these things, Lord, for your honor, for your glory, for the, for the souls of my, of my listeners, in Jesus' name.